Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Nas National Library of Australia. My name's Ben Pratt and I'm the Education Manager here at the Library. Uh, as we begin, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet today. I pay my respects to Elders past and present of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people for caring for this land uh, for which we're now privileged to call our home. This year we're thrilled to be celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, of the opening of this much-loved library building. And libraries and librarians have always had the role of providing access to information and helping people to navigate complex media landscapes. And this has never been more important than in the digital age where the challenge is no longer a lack of information but in discerning its quality. Uh, we're very, very pleased to be hosting this event in partnership with the Embassy of the United States of America. And this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Michelle Chiller-Lipkin. And Michelle is the Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education in the United States and is an adjunct lecturer at Brooklyn College in Media Criticism and Media Literacy. Michelle is joined by Gavin Sonwall, who's the Councillor for Public Affairs at the US Embassy here in Canberra, to discuss the ways that media consumption and digital literacy affect our lives. This evening's event will have a Q&A element, and as we're recording the audio, uh, we just ask if you please raise your hands. Uh, if you've got a question and the microphone will be brought to you uh, when the time comes, and that's just for the benefit of everybody here, but also so that we can hear questions on the recording. So would you please join me in welcoming Michelle and Gavin? Thank you very much, and Ben, we, to start with, we wanted to thank you and the National Library of Australia, uh, and Adam, uh, thank you very much for having us here tonight, and of course, all of you. Uh, it's an honor to be here with Michelle Lipkin. Uh, we, we envision this evening to be a, a conversation to start things out with. Uh, I'll, I'll ask Michelle some questions. Uh, get her take on some things, and then I'm sure that will lead to questions from you. And so we'll 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 chat for a while, and then we'll open it up to bring everyone into the conversation. Michelle, thank you so much for coming to Australia and speaking to us on this topic. Uh, to start things off, I wanted to ask you: Is there a basic definition that you like to work with for media literacy? Yes, definitely. So thank you all for being here and thank you uh, so much for hosting me. It's been a, a kind of incredible trip. Um, so the way that my organization defines media literacy is that media literacy is the ability to access, analyze, evaluate, create, and act using all forms of communication, right? So it really is just an expanded definition of literacy. And it's really about how are, you know, answering the question, what does it mean to be literate in the 21st century? And it is media literacy. We have to really understand how to consume an author with all forms of media. Thank you. That's very comprehensive. And I think important to keep in mind all the different aspects of it, of the topic, uh, particularly at the beginning. Um, every story has a beginning, mm -hmm. and I know for your story, the story of how you came to be executive director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education has a beginning as well. Would, would you mind sharing that story with us? Oh, not at all. Um, so um, I have an interesting path to this work. Um, it's very personal, so I apologize in advance because it's not the easiest story to tell. So um, I grew up in uh, a small town outside of New York City, and media 
really was not a big part of my life in the 1970s, you know, maybe Saturday morning cartoons, uh, really not something I paid attention to. And um, I moved to London in the 1980s and started to get exposed to some interesting content in Great Britain, <laughs> um, a little bit more sexually explicit, and, and started to notice the TV a little bit more. When I went back to the States, again, I was a teenager. I didn't think too much about the media landscape. I wasn't very into politics or uh, you know current events. I was a teenager, right, in the 1980s. So um, things changed for me and my family on December 21st, 1988. My father was coming home from a, an extended business trip in London, and he was aboard Pan Am 103 when it crashed over Lockerbie, Scotland because of a terrorist bomb on board. So that uh, was obviously uh, stunning and shocking and just kind of the, the worst thing that can really happen, you know, uh, to us at that time. And what, you know, there's a personal story there, obviously, and, and a lot about resilience and hope and all of this. But if we're talking about media literacy, let me talk about how that changed my relationship with the media and how that formed a lot of my passion for this work. So, um, we, it was 1988, and as most of us remember, 1988 was not a time where we could think of information at our fingertips, right? Uh, we found out uh, that my dad's plane had crashed uh, through a breaking news story. So my mother was home. She was making dinner. She was watching kind of an after-school soap opera, and breaking news came in, and uh, she had to kind of piece together that the plane they were talking about was my dad's and, and what, is, what did this mean? And so as the story unfolded, uh, that's where, you know, through the TV, through the screen in our home, we found out, you know, there were no survivors. We found out that th it was a bomb. We found out that there had been warnings. You know, we found out all of the information that everyone else was finding out about it. We didn't have a direct line. <laughs> we didn't have an internet, you know, an email system. No one was calling us and telling us more information than anyone else knew. So the only information we got about our, my father's death was through the screen, um, which is really impactful. And if you, some of you might remember um, that crash and the way it was covered, but there are some iconic images from that crash, a cockpit in the Scottish fields, some, uh, you know, a crater in the land, flames on a small town. And these are the images that we saw over and over again, because we know the news media really, you know, shows the worst of the worst over and over again. Now, at that time, I didn't think about it too much. So over the years, uh, we also were you know, our relationship with the press changed because they called us immediately, right? They wanted a reaction, they wanted to hear from us, and we had to make decisions about what, what role are we gonna play? Are we gonna tell our story? Are we going to, um, how are we gonna kind of navigate all of this? And really, truly, our, for the first three years, we could do very little uh, except deal with my father's death. So. We did not get incredibly involved. Um, we did not. We did not think too much about kind of the international aspect of this. We were sad, right? We just focused on, gosh, this is really sad. He's gone, and 
we had met a lot of people. Unfortunately, there were a lot of people in that area of the country. Obviously, the plane was coming into JFK in New York City. So we had met a lot of family members that had made made the choice to go to Scotland soon after the crash. And my mother, so I was 17 at the time, my sister was 19, and my brother was 21. So at this weird age of not, you know, I was the only one really still under the guise of uh, needing parenting, I guess. Um, so it was an interesting time, and my mom did not want us to go to Scotland. That was something, she just, she wanted everyone home, she didn't want us to fly, and my brother, you know, had to make, you know, he's 21, he can kind of do what he wants to do, but he had to respect, we kind of respected the way my mom wanted to handle things. So my mom became friends with other people that had lost family members on the plane, and about three years after the crash, so um, again, we didn't have a lot of information about our own story, we just got what we got from the news. And my mom decided to go to Scotland. And so my brother and I decided that we wanted to go to go with her. My sister was not quite ready to go. It was a very, if you can imagine, it was a relatively daunting idea to go to this place. We didn't know much. We didn't know anything except what we had seen, right? And we knew enough to know that it's three years. It's not going to look like that. But still, the you equate things with the images you see. Images are very powerful, so about three weeks before, and I'm sorry this story is so long, long, but it really does come full circle. So about three weeks before we left um, for the trip, and that was th almost three and a half years after the crash, we got a phone call. My mother got a phone call from a woman who had lost her husband on the plane. And she said that I, found the I met the people that found your husband. And my mom, oh my goodness. what are you talking, like what yeah. people, what are you talking about? Never even occurred to us, never occurred to us in three and a half years that there were people that he had been found. Like we, you know, it just, it wasn't something we had thought about. We actually, you know, didn't find out until his body wasn't identified for 10 full days, right? So for three and a half years, we just assumed that he hadn't been found for 10 days, right? Like, what would you think? You'd think, you know, and, and you can just imagine the thoughts you have and the nightmares you have about that. So, so my mom took the number down and told my brother and me about it. And, and I was like, I don't want to talk to them. Like, I don't want to know anything. I don't want to know. This just, this is too much. So we went to Scotland, we stayed with friends of our friends, and uh, we had the number on us, like we weren't thinking too much about it. Um, and we went, at that time, they still had the police investigation room set up so that family members could come and find out information about their loved ones, you know, so find out all the details that Again, today you'd probably be able to go on a secure website to find out, but we had to go to Scotland to find out. And it was in that police investigation room where we started to uncover this, the specific story of my dad's, right? So we had lumped his story in with the 269 other people that had died and the images that we saw, and you know we just assumed that he was there, right? That's where he died. So 
there was this map on this, the wall, and it was the map of all the debris area. And the debris was probably, I think it was like 220 mile, 220 right. mile square, square miles or something. Like insane, right? It's windy. So they found debris everywhere. But on the map, there was um, a pin for every, every person that had died, right? So an indication of where the bodies were found. And so the center of town, there were obviously the, the majority of the bodies because the majority of the plane fell with the fuselage. Um, but then you would see that there were pins that went further out and further out and further out. And there was this pin that was as far out as you could imagine and alone, just like alone, furthest from the center of the crash. And that was my dad. And... It was, it was just, I can't even explain to you, it was probably as mind-blowing as the crash itself in some ways, you know? And that was then we said, well, I guess, I guess we, have to, we have to go. We have to see this, right? We have to meet yeah. these people. And the friends that we were with called them, and Margaret uh, answered the phone, and our friend said, we have Frank's family with us. And Margaret started to cry. And she, the first question she asked was, are, are they dark like him? And, and it was just really mind-blowing, because I am, I like, look just like I'm really dark hair, we're Italian heritage, right? And you know, she'd never seen my dad, except that night, right? So we went to their farm. It, was, uh, it took us 40 minutes to get there from the town where we were staying, winding roads through Scottish sheep farms that like you can only imagine, you know, mm -hmm. it's the most beautiful scenery you could ever imagine. And it took so long and it was really, the first time we went, just kind of mind blowing the distance, right? So it was six miles away from the center of the crash. So, so we got there and the first thing Margaret said to me was, you look just like your dad. And in that moment, you just, like, I can't, there are no words to explain what that moment was like for me. But the person, the, you know, the 19-year-old that didn't want to ask any questions, then I just wouldn't shut up, right? And I wanted to know everything. And the story is that, you know, they found my dad 20 minutes after the crash. So they heard noise. They, you know, went out, it was dark, so they had their flashlights, you know, they're used to going out on their farm at night, seeing what's going on with their sheep and their cattle, and, um, and they found him, and uh, they told us that he looked um, so much like he was alive that they checked his pulse. They told us that they wanted to, you know, bring him inside, and they knew they couldn't. They knew they couldn't, but they protected him from the press, you know, because the press was, you know, kind of coming in. And what did they want? They wanted those those just horrific images right. to right. to put on the um, front page. And she she just told us like she answered questions we didn't even know that we had, and. We were, it's an amazing thing to think that you're lucky after something like this happens, but we were so lucky to have this opportunity to learn about our father and his story. And we were luckier than most families. Like most families did go there and find out just kind of horrific details about their 
um, children and their husbands and their wives' ex last moments, right? So she invited us to go to the spot where my dad was found. And um, she walked us there. And again, we're she has 2,000 acres, right? So this is a lot of land. And she walked us to this spot as if it, is, it was so clear that she had been there hundreds and hundreds of times, that she had gone there and that she had honored my father and that she had mourned him too. And she, she had said that she wanted to um, plant a tree, but she didn't want to plant a tree until his family gave permission. And the story is that the, the people, the, the officials in Lockerbie told them not to get in touch with us. Like, they were told, do not get in touch with the families. And this was, like, a broad statement because, you know, most of the families died on people's properties, right? Most right. of the passengers right. died on people's homes. And they were told that families will come. They will come and they will seek you. Do not go and seek them. So they were told not to get in touch with us. So when she walked us to the spot, um, it's this piece of land in Scotland that really, truly was just one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen, one of the most beautiful places. And yes, the, like the end result is still the same. My, my father was still killed, and this is a terrible tragedy. But where he ended his life was so different than what I had assumed, right? And it was so mind-blowing. And then this ties back to media is because then I got really frustrated, and I get really mad because I had never thought that I was supposed to question what I was seeing. It never occurred to me that the news wasn't telling us everything we needed to know. Like I just assumed and I never asked questions and I never thought about things that I know now, obviously, as someone who's like studying media literacy and questioning the news media and questioning right. all of these things, right. is that I didn't know, I didn't even know I was supposed to ask questions, forget knowing what questions to ask, right? So I want to just show you, um, just, it, you need to kind of see a visual. There, okay, so, so these are the images, you know, that, that came to us, right? So the, the cockpit in the Scottish fields is kind of the iconic image of this, this flight. And so, you know, these, this is what we're seeing, right? This is a crater where the 11 people on the ground were killed. These were homes moments before the, the crash hit the town. And, um, you know, just really horrific, shocking, how can this happen images. And, um, you know, of houses and bodies strewn around. And so this is what we had in our minds, right? This is where we thought our father and my mom's husband died. And uh, what we thought that was true. Like we thought we were, we knew, right? And, and over the years, it was just bombardment, right? Bombardment of images and images. And the truth is, is that this is where my dad died. Mm. Right? So that's where my dad died. And that's the tree that we went there this summer with uh, his grandkids for the first time. And that's where he died, right? So it wasn't here, it wasn't here, it wasn't here, it wasn't in the middle of this horror. He died like alone, um, away from the, 
the crux of the tragedy, right, in, this per, in these people's homes who cared for him and wanted to protect him. So that difference, right, that difference was, is just stunning to experience, but it made me think a lot about the media and the news media, and then essentially we started telling our story. So we started seeking and saying yes to news. You know, we did Nightline was a huge show in 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 the states. We did episodes in Nightline talking about our story. I was the subject of a BBC documentary, the tenth anniversary. Um, you know, really trying to then take, to, like, kind of turn it around and say, okay, if we're not going to hear everything, then I'm going to I'm going to take I'm going to take my voice and I'm going to tell my story. Um, and so that led me to really thinking deeply about media and media production and um, about uh, what, what our relationship with the news is and the structure in which news is made and the choices newsmakers make. And, and you know, I truly believe from a, obviously a very personal standpoint that like my life would have been different if I had known, you know, if I had been taught uh, to be critical of the news and to think about the news. And, you know, I think everything happens for a reason and maybe there were things we weren't supposed to know that we needed time to process. But the 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 takeaway for me of this whole experience is about that incredible, incredibly powerful industry of news um, and how they choose to tell part of a story um, and not always deliberately to be, you know, manipulative. And it's not, it's not that their intentions are, are bad all the time. It's that the structure is built in such a way that you can't tell the whole story. You don't have enough time. You have to focus on certain things. So that is a very long answer to your question of, of why I'm so interested in this discussion and why I've kind of made it my life's work. Well, and, and obviously why you're so passionate about it. Thank, thank you for sharing with us. That's a very powerful story. And I'm, I'm sorry for what you and your family thank went you. through. I'm sorry for your dad. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, it, it sounds like there, there's another element in your story as well, which is that the, the family whose farm it was were told by authorities don't contact mm -hmm. The families don't don't reach out to them, but it, it seems that hmm. this this was a moment of closure. This was a moment of connection. Yeah, that the f it was just as important for the family that yes. had found your father as it was for you. Uh, we think, at least, I've always grew up with the the kind of the noble notion of the press, mm -hmm. of the press being the fourth estate, the, the press speaking truth to power, uh, the press asking of authorities the hard questions mm -hmm. to provide the public with accurate information, the truth, right? That's the goal is to, to get the truth, just the facts. Mm -hmm. But it seems that in this case, the media did not perform that service, not just with, because they focused on the sensational, but because yeah. there are all these other aspects to the story. And I'm, I'm not saying cover up on the part of the authorities, but had you known that if the media had reported that, yes. that the, the people who had discovered 
the final yeah. resting places of everyone on the plane were not, were being told not to relay that information, yes, yes, not to contact yeah. that families. It, it could have made all the difference to your family sooner, and all the dis- difference to the yeah. to I'm sorry, is Maggie? No, uh, the, Margaret. Margaret. Yeah, uh, it's who, so true. Yeah, I mean, she didn't. I mean, we thought it was always in, uh, funny because she thought he was a young man, and she thought of a wife, not kids, and so we thought he would love that because he always thought he looked so young. And um, he, yeah, and so she didn't even have that choice. So it would have changed her experience of it too. One of the most interesting things though is, is that in America, we call that tragedy uh, Pan Am 103. And in Scotland, they call it the Lockerbie Air Disaster. And that was fascinating to me because it, it's very, I mean, it's very American to focus on um, the kind of, uh, it wasn't the place, right? It was the, the plane that they were focusing on and the people in the plane. And I think when I went to Scotland the first time, what I recognized is that, you know, I had lost my father, but they lost everyone. Right. They, this town right. lost 270 people, you know, because our family members became part of their experience, right? And they... You know, so they, I think they covered it from that perspective, and we covered it in, in respect to the investigation and to the blame. You know, it was it, just the focus of the coverage was different, which I think, again, I didn't know until I got there. Absolutely. Uh, just again, to since this, your life experience has brought you here today to us uh, to talk about media literacy. Uh, when, when you talk about media literacy today, we have to take into account that media has changed so mm-hmm. much since then. Uh, everyone has their tablet, their iPhone. Uh, so few people actually get coverage from, from traditional sources, whether it be newspapers or television. What, what difference do you think it would have made had a tragedy like this, had that tragedy happened in the current age where there's so many different sources of information out there. Yeah, so I think I think that it would have there's always pros and cons to these things, right? There's a lot of benefits of having more information at our fingertips and a, and a lot of negatives to it. And so I think that in some ways you know, we would have got, we would have been able to get information faster, um, and we wouldn't have had to to wait so long. But I think there would have been possibly more inaccuracies because that's what the speed of information. You know, because the speed of information is is unprecedented. We have a lot more inaccuracies, and and you know, news. Na- there's no time to develop news stories anymore. There's no time to think on them. We have to be the f- you know the first to get it out. And that model just means there's more, you know, just wrong stuff out there. Um, and again, they, you know, really, they know what they know at the time, but you usually don't know a lot right at the beginning, right? right? You just right. don't. So I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. My sister uh, did probably really like a, uh, a dangerous um, test. So the la- I think... Um, there was a plane crash X amount of years ago, I think, in the Swiss Alps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my sister like kind of dug into this question because we've always felt, you know, like oh, so frustrating that we couldn't get information and we didn't know we had to wait so long. I mean, you have to imagine it's like you 
10 days to not know where your father is, where my mother is. I mean, that like is so many days. Like, that's so many days. And um, she did. She wanted to see what it was like today. Like, what happens after a plane crashes today? And she was, it was so alarming and so overwhelming, all the information you could have access to and how quickly it came out and what was true and what was false and whatever, that she came to the conclusion that it's much harder. You know, it's much harder. Um, I think oftentimes in the news coverage and certainly the way we process the news is we, we don't remember that there's a personal aspect to the news and that real people's families are dying and, and real, you know, that there is a person uh, that's hearing this also for the first time, right? There's mm. a personal connection, and I think that I, I hope, I wish we could be better at that. I wish we could remember that more. And, and be more sensitive yeah. in the coverage. Yeah, be Absolutely. more sensitive in the coverage, that there are real people who um, are being impacted. And even the words we choose to say, you know, it's, it's you know, news is, it's always related to real people, but we don't necessarily behave that way, certainly in the U.S. in the news. So, I, I, yeah, I wish there was a little bit more sensitivity to it, for sure. Absolutely. That, that also touches on the question of how we can, can be better evaluators in mm -hmm. the moment, uh, particularly with the 24-7 constant stream of information, even for breaking events, so often it seems that the rush to be first yeah. is more important these days than, than the, the almost professional quality of being accurate. Yeah. And so in that okay. rush to be first, so much gets lost. And then if you're out first with bad information, so often that sets the, that's what most people remember. And yes, particularly yes. this we're sort of touching on now, uh, manipulation uh, of the press, the people who will go out with false information to shape a false narrative mm -hmm. in the hopes that that defines an event or that defines uh, reality, uh, yeah. making their own reality. Uh, and it could be politicians, it could be just reporters covering an event, just trying to be first. How, what advice would you have for us for trying to evaluate how, or trying to help us be better evaluators evaluators of the information as we receive it? So I think, yeah, you make really good points. I think that the one thing we have to recognize is that there's more information out there in the world than ever existed, right? There's you know, we've created more information in the last five years than ever before in human history, right? So we're going to have a little trouble sifting through it. This is not something that we should have expected that we would know how to do right away. Um, so I think the, so the most important thing, certainly in the cultural conversation about information, um, is that we need to move beyond the conversation of fake news, so we need to recognize that information is much more complex than whether something is fact or fiction, right? The great majority of information falls somewhere in between those two. And most information today that we have access to um, is commentary, right? So most of what we see uh, and what we read and what we hear on our feeds um, 
is people talking about stuff that has happened, right? It's just people talking. That's all we're seeing is people talking about it. So being able to sift through that and understand that there is a distinct difference between you know one tweet and an investigative report. Like I always use that example. And the difficulty in that is that our feeds are set up in a way where it doesn't provide us with a hierarchy, right? Like you can see a post from your, you know, aunt saying something silly right after a really significant report that's been released by some research agency, right? That's really hard to, you know, this is why we need practice and media literacy to understand, like, how do I, where do I pause? How do I process that kind of information all in one kind of fell swoop? Um, so I think, so recognizing that information is complex and recognizing that our communication systems don't really allow for that complexity. Do you know what I mean? So there's so many issues that are discussed in the news. And because we are limited in the news by the amount of uh, words on a page or the amount of time between commercials, there's only or a so number of characters in a tweet. Exactly. Like there's only so much of a story that can be told, right? So you know, when I look at my particular story and my, you know, my personal, uh, the coverage of my personal tragedy, you know, asking yourself over and over again, like, well, what, what am I not hearing? Like, what is left out? This is like, I've been talking to high schoolers for a week and a half about this, right? What is left out of this message? What isn't in there? Because nothing can be complete. Our, our systems are too limiting, right? And that doesn't always mean that it's manipulative or unfair or inaccurate. It just means there isn't enough space or time in a, in a program to, to do it. So I think recognizing that information is, is really difficult to put in a box, you know, and to say, oh, this is fake news, this isn't fake news. Hmm. That's not really the questions we should be asking. We should be asking questions about bias. We should be asking questions about agenda. We should be asking, um, you know, what is left out of the message? Wh why, why do I feel this way about this while someone else feels something? You know, why do different people react differently? Like, we need to get down to a deeper understanding of information. And that's going to take our doing, right? Because the systems aren't built for that, right? The, build, the systems are not built for deep thinking. So we have to be doing that around the platforms. And I think that um, you know we have to be willing to. We've been talking a lot about you know the filter bubble or the echo chamber and how you know our mm -hmm. social media feeds become, you know they look like mirrors, right? You follow people that you know and love and agree with, right? And that's again a normal reaction to these systems. Like these are you know we didn't really even understand there were algorithms and now we see that there were algorithms and what they were doing and we're now questioning it, which is great. So what we need to do is start following and reach, you know, trying to reach across and say, well, I disagree with this person, but what is the point that they're making? And really try to get other sides of the story. And if there is one thing that I could dream of is that people didn't share unless they read something. Like, mm. that we don't use headlines as a means to share because um, headlines are often not... Uh, accurate, like they don't relate to the content of a piece, and they're really just meant to get us to click on them. That's really all they're meant for. So we have to be willing to pause. 
We have to be willing to pause, and if we don't have time to read something, then we don't have time to share it. Like, that's what it's got to be, and we have to kind of make that like, um, play, like promise to each other because if people just did that, like if really people just stopped sharing unless they really got a, a moment, five minutes, ten minutes to read the article, we'd have a different landscape, right? And we didn't trust, Absolutely. you know, you have to be really careful with those headlines. Those headlines are designed to get us to click on them, and that's all headlines. That's New York Times headlines and, you know, uh, YouTubers' headlines. Like, they need us to click on them. They're counting on us doing that. Right? Well, and I, I think what a lot of people don't realize, I didn't realize it until I was talking to the CEO of Huffington Post, uh, that they will change a headline yep. based on the number of clicks. And yep. so the story might, might start with one headline, and if they feel the traffic, the number of clicks isn't high enough, they'll just keep refining and refining and refining mm -hmm. to, to up the number, uh, to up the attention that the headline's drawing in. Um, we're, we're obviously talking about social media now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I have a, a last question because I do, I do want to bring the audience in. So my, my last question, which I'll draw out just a little bit, is, is a simple question, but then, then maybe a little uh, adding some complexity, okay. which is are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of social media as the means by which we receive our information these days? Uh, and then the, the context is, it seems in this moment, traditional media is, has, has been put, under, put, under, put on the hot seat. Mm -hmm. It's been put under the microscope. And especially in response to a number of authority figures and others throwing, throwing charges like fake news at traditional media. Traditional media has held its own. Traditional media has said, wait a second, this is our mm -hmm. methodology. These are our sources and our methods. This is how we go about things. And we upfront admit we don't always get it right. And when we get it wrong, we retract or we, we publish, we, we say upfront, we got it wrong. This is why this is the correction. And we correct it. There's none of that in social media from what I've been able to tell. Now, granted, you'll say, well, social media is a provider. It's not news source. Mm -hmm. And in that, they, there are traditional media sources. But I think along with that is, this, is my sense that while traditional media, which is more content-based, has been forced to have this moment of professional reckoning and put under, the micro, uh, put under the microscope, we're only at the beginning of that, or we're maybe not even doing that yet, with social media providers, getting them to, to actually be transparent about algorithms. Uh, why, why am I reading the stories that mm -hmm. appear in my news feed? Uh, how do I know where they came from? Is it random? Is it advertiser driven? Is, am I reading stuff because Russians want me to read it so that I vote a certain way mm -hmm. in the upcoming election? So again, sorry, I threw in a lot of stuff Yeah, there. that's a, uh, where do I even start? No, I'll start stuff, with the first op question. Op optimistic or pessimistic? Yeah, so I'll start with that. I'm incredibly optimistic. Now, okay. I am a very optimistic person. I really, really, truly believe that there is more positives uh, about the world and the communication systems and the ability to have our voice heard. Like, I really, truly believe there are more positives than there are negatives. There are negatives. And I believe that a lot of the negatives is just because we're amateurs. Like, we really don't understand the systems yet. Um, I have to say that, you know, there's... 
I, I'm just going to share like one personal example. So we hear a lot about kids and technology, right? And kids spending too much time on technology and what it's doing to their brains and all of this. But I have to say that my son, he's 16 years old, and he and four of his friends um, started a band. And over the last year, they have recorded themselves, they have written, recorded, produced, mixed, released on social media, two full albums. Wow. They have created videos. They have shot videos, edited videos, released videos. They are um, on pla different platforms, like different music platforms. They are on different social media. And it's incredible. They did it. They did not have any parental support. They did not need adults. They did it. They used their voice. They created it. They used their technical skills. And if you can't tell me that that's not extraordinary, like that's extraordinary what kids can do today, right? And so I feel like there is this, we focus a lot on the negative um, and we don't focus enough about the possibilities. Now, the big question that you have there though about the social media companies versus mm -hmm. like the traditional media. That's a huge question right now that we need to explore in the media literacy context because part of the issue, and you probably noticed this, so when Mark Zuckerberg had to testify right. to Congress about like the spread of misinformation, the way that the congressman struggled with asking questions, right? That they, they don't even know what a social media company is. They don't, they don't, they're not treating it like a traditional media company. They don't know whether it's a tech company. They don't know it's, and that is um, something we have not figured out yet. We have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg saying, I'm not a media company. I'm a tech company. Like, mm -hmm. well, but you're, you're where most people are accessing their information. So again, this is where I think we're so new in this process, which is part of the difficulty. Should the social media be regulated the way you know, media companies should be, should they be, have the same responsibilities as the, um, you know, the media companies? What is the merging of these two? Because these traditional media companies have social media sites, right? So there's so much detail and so much complication in just how we talk about it as a business and what their role and responsibility is. Um, because I do think that, um, they do fall into a different category than traditional media um, because they are, um, you know, they are curating information, right? They are curating information that based on us mm -hmm. as a, it's just different. It's, it's more, it's more personal, right? It's more nuanced, it's more niche. Um, so I think, I, I think the point that I want to make is I do think that, um, there are there should be different rules and and one of the things that i would like to see us focus on with tech companies is that transparency right so to me i think what's most important about facebook is them to tell their users about their algorithms about the way they use our data and then let us choose whether we want to be on the platform or not I don't want Facebook to focus all their attention on keeping misinformation off of my feed. Like, right. I want to be able to do that. I want them to tell, like, I don't want them to be arbiters of my, you know, I don't want them to censor my information, mm -hmm. but they have to take some responsibility for transparency. So is that, so, 
I think it's a re- I'm fascinating by this because it's just stuff we haven't seen before. So we don't have a reference point, right? We don't have a reference point a, a, because we are, and it comes down to the issue with like participatory culture, right? right? So we are now all media creators, right? We are part of the media system. We are not separate. We are not passive consumers. So what does that mean? What does that mean for a relationship with these platforms? What does it mean that, you know, um, I am not only being advertised to on Facebook, they're using me to get advertisers. So I'm like paying double, for, you know, it seems free, but it's not free. And, you know, what does that mean long term? And what are the choices that we make as consumers and kind of participants in the society? And the information should be transparent so we can make informed decisions, right? And right now it's just not. It's not as transparent as it should be. I do like the movement since the 2016 election and how fast people woke up to this information. You know, mm-hmm. people were really, really confused as to why they were searching things on Google and then they went to their Facebook feeds and there were ads for it. Now people get it and we are demanding a little bit more of those companies. And that's also like why I'm, you know, why I'm optimistic because I do feel as if um, we're going to figure out answers to those questions. I just don't know if we know them yet. Wow. I don't know. That's a lot. I don't know if I... Well, you just just introduced so many interesting and important topics and themes that I need help. (laughs) Audience, (laughs) there's a lot that we could look at and unpack there. But so please, who, who would like the first question? Yes, there's the microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much for your uh, very powerful um, uh, telling of your story of your father's um, uh, death. Um, in this country, if some, uh, an, an event such as Lockerbie, I'll call it Lockerbie because mm-hmm. uh, that's how I know it, if there was an event such as that affecting Australians, um, Often it would say in the press that um, the Department of Foreign Affairs is providing consular assistance to the family of the victims. Um, So you had all this um, dreadful visual imagery of what you saw as having happened to your father. What was the role of your own government in communicating with you to try and balance some of that out, or even the airline itself, in actual fact, with trying to keep you informed in a, in a slightly more um, compassionate and level-headed way um, to sort of try... Because it must have been dreadful, all of that stuff, and you couldn't get away from it, presumably. I mean, were the government and the airline very active in engaging with you? So um, I was 17 when this happened, so I wish my mom was there to answer that question because I wasn't very engaged in in those things. I know my mom had an active, you know, um, I, I can say that the airline didn't handle things very well. <laughs> um, and I know that. And we were unfortunately at the tail end of one in- administration and ready to start another administration. And I think that was tricky in terms of the government kind of, uh, I think it was bad timing, honestly. It was right after Reagan was just, yeah, it was December 21st, and then, you know, George Bush was starting the next January, you know, in January. So that was a difficult time. Um, I think that over time, um, really the Clinton administration was the administration that really took um, 
the concerns of the family um, most seriously and where we got the most kind of uh, support for the investigation and bringing, um, you know, it's a hard story because if you don't know, there was a conviction, but then the convicted bomber was released uh, for compassionate leave because he was ill. So it's a really complicated story. Um, it's 30 years yeah. of news and yeah. up and down, you know, for, for families. Um, so I would say that uh, I don't know that much about what it was like because I was 17 and I had to go back to school and do my homework and figure out, you know, all of that stuff and whether I was going to go to prom now. You know, it was a really tricky time. And so my mom dealt with a lot of that. But, you know, I think they probably did the best they could with what they had then. Uh, now the government's, you know, great. We're getting a lot of information. There's still investigations going on, and we have a direct channel. You know, it's different now. Ever, you know, it's probably been 10 years where it's been, you know, great because we do get we get warnings when new news stories are coming out. You know, like we get prepared for it. Like we just want you, we just want the families to know that this new piece of information has come out. And so that's great, right? That just is, I don't think that was a fault of anyone that that couldn't happen before. It just was the communication. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Uh, yes, over, over here. Thanks. Um, thanks for coming along to, to talk to us tonight. Um, you mentioned earlier that you've spent all week talking to kids. Um, I'm curious to know what um, what sort of activities your um, uh, well other activities the organisation gets involved in. So uh, talking to, in schools, I imagine, is what you meant. Do you engage mm -hmm. with libraries, universities, politicians? What what, what are yeah. the other sorts of things that you do? So we're our, our focus is um, the education, right? So we're really focused on where like the formal and informal um, education spaces. So. Um, we have partners, so we're a membership organization, so we have individual members and then we have partners. And so a lot of the, the work, like one-on-one -on -one work, is being done by those members and um, partners, and really our job as an organization is to amplify the, the voice of those organizations and teachers and to provide, you know, like distribute resources that's coming out of there. So we do, um, you'll see programs in, you know, elementary school, so we have elementary, middle, and high school in the states, and you'll see them across the board. Certainly it started in high school, and then people realized, oh, we should be talking to our middle school schoolers about it, and mm -hmm. now people are like, maybe they need to start in elementary school, <laughs> and now we're doing like early ed. You know, we're realizing that the moment kids get the device in their hand, we need to figure out how to talk to them by, about by, it. By early ed, what ages are you talking about? Uh, it's zero to five. Oh, my <laughs> okay. Because ki parents are giving no, their kids... Absolutely. Uh, phones at six months in the um, in the stroller, right? And so, how are we talking about it? So, so the the work is really interesting in in the education space because um, it's done in a variety of different ways, right? It might be done through a social studies classroom or a history classroom. It might be done through an English classroom. There might be a media arts program at a school. It could be happening in a school library. You know, in those courses, there the communities are doing it in you know workshops in public libraries and community centers and our public broadcasting system is very involved in this work in this space um, so we're kind of seeing it in a in a lot of uh, different ways um, and I think with you know 
our student, you know, the students that our teachers are working, you know, our focus is most often on the teacher, right? Like how are we giving the teacher the training and the support that they can turn around and teach the students. I always, me personally, make sure that I'm with students frequently, and that's one of the reasons I teach, because I think it's really important for me to keep, you know, be in the classroom and see what it, you know, people are responding to and thinking about. Um, but I don't know if you're interested in more like specifics about what I did with the students, whether, oh, that's good, okay, great. Oh, oh, you were? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah, so, I mean... Yeah. And, uh, and, and if I could just add one element sure. to that. Uh, did you, what sort of questions did you get from Australian students? What were they particularly interested in? Um, so, uh, you know, really basic media literacy in the simplest way is watching things and talking about them, right? <laughs> so what did I do with kids? I watched advertisements, and we talked about... Um, you know, who made, I, we have a series of key questions. I think there's uh, handouts out there uh, to think about when you're watching, when you're analyzing media. So they're, you know, about like the meaning of messages, the audience and authorship of me messages, the representation, all of that. So, you know, we would watch a commercial and you talk about what is, you know, who made it? Why was it made? What was the target audience? What, what techniques did they use to, to, um, get my attention. Uh, is this credible? Is this uh, fact, opinion, something else? And really just just analyzing. I mean, Mike saw me do it like 27 times <laughs> in the past week, but this idea of just like everything we do, like why, what is the purpose of it? What is, you know, what bias do we see in it? Um, and really just, you know, again, don't expect students and people to do all of those questions every single time, but we should never be consuming media or creating media where we're not asking ourselves questions about that media. So it really is about, you know, I have a 15-week course, three hour um, a week, right? So 15 weeks, three hour on Wednesdays. And we just, I just do not stop. We watch the news, we watch this, we watch that, and I just make them ask question after question after question. And we just have to train ourselves to do that, you know, and reflect and think and... It's exhausting, I know, but it's like we have to do it. <laughs> now more than ever. Yeah, we really do. Yeah. Yeah. So the younger kids, so some of the younger kid work is really with the parent, right? So I've talked a few times about this concept that's being developed in the U.S. through some of our kind of leading partners, New America, Erickson Institute, this idea of a media mentor that we have to teach parents. You know, we have to teach parents to teach media literacy in the home the way they sit down with their kids and teach them how to read and write. You know, mm -hmm. we sit with our kids um, frequently, uh, painstakingly every night, reading them books and teaching them words and sitting with them while they're doing this. Um, and we don't do that with technology. For whatever reason, we hand the technology over to the kid and we actually use it more as kind of a break, right? So we need to change our thinking about that. We need to teach parents to sit with them, engage with them, so that, you know, then they'll learn how to read and write using that, and we're not, we don't have to hover as much as you don't anymore with your older kids who read, right? So, um, so this, the, the younger kids, it's really about um, their parent, you know, their parent education, and it's also teaching them things like, 
you can teach kids how to, you know, read a photograph, like the stories in a photograph, or um, you can, kids, really young kids can create little videos on tablets, you know, you can do that work with kids and get them thinking about it, um, you know, as, as part of their, you know, overall education. Uh, ben in the thanks, back. thanks, Michelle. You've, you've started <clears throat> answering my question okay. already, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, I was wondering if you'd give your thoughts on how other modes of literacy feed into or support media literacy. So specifically, you know, what we think of as traditional literacy or digital literacy, civic literacy, how they kind of fit together or, or, um, or support each other. Yeah, so, um, so I think, you know, the way that we look at media literacy is you know, a lot of those subsets like digital literacy, web literacy, health literacy, you know, all of these things kind of for us fall within that category. Um, you know, print literacy or traditional literacy, I guess you could call it, I, you know, is the foundation of all of those things. Like, you must start with with print literacy. Um, and, and that might, you know, I don't think that's a you know, a proven statement by my organization, but it's an assumption. Like, we know print literacy, you know, we have to teach our kids how to be literate um, and read and write, right? That's, that's not, that should never change. Um, so we, we see media literacy just building on that, right? So if you think about that, it, again, the, the idea that it's an, not a different literacy, it's an expanded definition of literacy. And this idea of creating and consuming and, like, authoring you know, we need, that's what we're talking about. So rather than writing a paper, you know, creating a video and, and using that media text and how we do that um, is something that needs to be explored in the classroom. Um, you know, and I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we have an expectation for what students are going to need to do in their career, right? And in the, you know, media is, is a part of most careers, um, whether you, you know, work in a, in a store or you're a doctor or, you know, media and technology are going to be around you. So we have to do whatever we can to prepare, you know, they need, they need these skills. So, yeah, so that's how I see, how I see it. No, Absolutely. And it, it seems more than ever central to the health of any democracy. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to base a government on participation of by and for the people, people need to be aware and need to be active. We just, we just can't be passive consumers. Any yeah, and I think we have to, you know, space. recognize that these, you know, we're a nonpartisan organization, right? Like, media literacy is not... Um, is not trying to get people to change their minds. It's not trying to get people to think a certain way, right? It's trying to get people to think. Like, whether whatever you believe in, you should be thinking about it. And you should recognize that media systems and media companies and media and tech companies have huge power. And as the public, we should understand that power. We should sometimes fight that power, right? Sometimes. Um, we should sometimes sit down with them and talk with them about it. Um, but we have to we have to know about it, right? And right. the only way we're going to know about it is if we're talking about it. And so um, it's really I don't know. This is just so important. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think we have time for one or two more questions. Yep. Please. Oh, sorry. And if you wouldn't mind waiting for the microphone, I know you're close. But... I think they're recording it, right? That's why we need the. They're they're frowning at me with the questions without the microphone. So. <laughs> when you're working with 
teenagers say, and you're going through a news, you know, you say you watch a news article with them, what, where do you even start for the questions that you're asking? Like, how do you know what to ask or what should they be asking when they see a news report on something? Um, that's a great question. So I think there's some really basic, well done. Um, so there's some basic questions, and again, there's that document outside. So you always wanna, you wanna start with who made this and why was it made? Right? Who made this? Who, who did this? And why was it made? What is the purpose of this piece? Is it to inform? Is it to uh, get us to buy something? Is it to make us laugh? Um, is it because someone wants us to click on the like button? You know, like, why was it made? That's important to know. Who made it? Like, who is the source of this information? So one of the things that drives me crazy is when people say that oh, they can't believe people are getting their, uh, their news from social media. They're not getting their news from social media. They're accessing their news through social me media, right? Facebook isn't giving us news. Facebook is giving us access to all these different news sites and that we have to, you know, so it's really important to always know the source of that information. So I hate when people say, oh, I heard, I heard on Facebook. No, you didn't hear on Facebook. Come on, and it's usually my mom. Mom, you didn't hear on Facebook. Where did you hear it? Like, where, what article? And it's usually linked. It's linked to, to the New York Times or CNN or Fox or whatever. That's where they're getting their information. So we always have to make that com connection of where did this information come from, right? And then we have to ask ourselves what is left out of the message. So what, what's missing? Like, what don't I know about this? Um, if it's a commercial, it's usually you know nothing about the product, right? Like, usually commercials are, commercials are not designed to inform us about the product. They're designed to get us to feel something so that we think we need the product that they're trying to sell, right? And, um, and so those, que those key questions also, um, I like to ask myself, like, how would different people interpret this message? So, like, I shared this, my story with, um, 250 students at Perth Modern High School the other day, and I started the conversation with looking at very simple images, um, like a chocolate cake. Like, how would different people interpret a picture of chocolate cake, right? So I love chocolate, so that's a great picture for me. It's gorgeous. I can picture myself with a fork and that cake and a cup of tea, right? What if I'm allergic to chocolate? What if I'm on a diet, right? These are things that would impact the way I received that message. Then I'd show, you know, show another picture of a, a musician who I love. If, the, if, if you don't like that musician, you're gonna feel something different like, from that image. And these are just images, right? If you look at that picture that I shared of the cockpit, like I show that image and I say, how would different people interpret this image? What if you loved to fly? What if you hated to fly? What if you were a pilot? What if you knew someone on that plane? You know, like you are going to have different perceptions of that. So I think to me, those are like some of the really key questions to ask. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's what, you know, what action do they want me to take from this? What do they want me to feel? Because most media is created for a, a connection with feeling and emotion. And we need to get really tuned in on what those emotions are. So we're not always reacting, you know, to them because they want, and social media doesn't help. Social media is a very reactive uh, environment. So um, I don't know if that helps, but yeah, start there. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point to end on because okay, you, gave, you gave a great summation of Good. why it's important and how to do it. 
Uh, Michelle, we can't thank you enough. Thank you. Uh, we've we have worked Michelle to death. She's not kidding. She's been to Brisbane, <laughs> it's been a busy day. Brisbane, Sydney, Perth, here, and next is Melbourne. Yeah, tomorrow morning. Uh, but it's sincerely, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here. Thank, thank you. you not just for being with us and sharing with us, but thank you for your advocacy on behalf of all of us. Oh, thank you so much. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Awesome. Thank you. And. Thank, thank you as well. Uh, and again, thanks to Ben and the National Library of Australia and Adam, without whom you wouldn't be seeing or hearing us, even those in front of us. Uh, also, from the just quick thanks from the consulate, Trevlin Gilmore, uh, Mike Bowerbank, Panina Reed, and Tim Dolstra, thank you very much as well. Thank and you. Have a good evening. <laughs>